So, what did we think of the film yesterday? It's yeah. okay. It was a film. Good, next segment. All right, on to the quiz. It was completely <laughs> off the cuff. It was completely off the cuff. I prefer to improvise, then I can be really fun. Funny? Alien concepts. I'll fix it in the edit. Alien concepts. If I wish you could fix life in the edit, then my life would be better. Well, that kind of fix nicely leads us on to this film, doesn't it? That's yes. true. Oh. In a world where Robert Shaw doesn't exist to edit out people's mistakes. In a world where Robert Shaw he invents creates successful segues. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Time in Some Guy's Parents' House. We're back in Some Guy's Parents' House. I am Some Guy, named Mike, and my friends Jules and Rob are with me. Gentlemen, how are you? And I'm Ringo. I, I'm not a racist, so I won't even try that accent. <laughs> but Rob, Rob's got his crosses to bear. Did you want to set up the story, the plot of the film? What are, what are we talking about today? We are talking about the film Yesterday. yesterday. Today we talk about Yesterday. It's a film directed by Danny, Danny Boyle, Boyle. And written by Richard Curtis. Danny Boyle. No, Richard Curtis. Danny Curtis. Starring Himesh Patel of EastEnders fame. And uh, a few other people who we can talk about later. Nicely saved. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it feels like someone else has written all the songs. And it's about a man who is a struggling songwriter and he has an accident, a rather inexplicable accident, where power is lost everywhere in the world for 12 seconds. He gets hit by a bus while he's on his bike while this is happening. And when he wakes up, he wakes up in a world where nobody knows anything about the Beatles or any of their songs except for him. And mm. then he decides to bring them back to the world and uh, launch his, his career to stardom. Uh, using the Beatles songs that he retains his memory. By pretending that they're his. I think By that's, the big, that's the, big, the big part of it, because otherwise he's not just a human jukebox. That's true. Oh, actually, do you know the genre of this film? Is it fantasy like most Richard Curtis films? It's jukebox musical. Really? I suppose it's because it's pop songs in a musical oh, rather than songs written specifically for the Like The, the Doors. Film. Oliver Stone as The Doors. Yeah, I think most of the and Beatles uh, films would qualify and mm. The Wall and that sort of thing. But they were um, original. So the Beatles made films using songs they had already written and uh, already yeah, was it knew. Richard Lester did uh, Hard Day's Night? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Sunshine on Leith recently, the, which was The Levelers, I think. I saw that All one right. in the cinema. Definitely counts. That's people in the film singing songs by The Levelers um, right. as part of sort of the plot and <laughs> setting the tone of the scenes. I think I'm talking about The Levelers as in um, And I Would Walk 500 Miles and Scottish that's, Band. That's, no, that's the Proclaimers. The Proclaimers. The Proclaimers. See, this is I'm why, trying to think who The Levelers were. This is why I yeah. am really, really not the person self, to talk about films about music. self-proclaimed. I'm trying to think, A Levelers film? <laughs> Literate. The Proclaimers, Sunshine yeah. on Leaf. Not a bad film. Never even heard of it. It's but, done on the stage a lot, right? I mean, like a lot of stage productions mm. are done where they're like, let's let's collect all of these hits and then we'll make a story that kind of can loosely string all these things together. Sure, so we will Rock you, yeah. Bat out of hell, Meatloaf. Yes, oh. of course. No, that was of based on. Of course, the, Bat out of hell. That was based on the uh, true life of Meatloaf. That's right. Only yesterday, I visited Abbey Road. No way. Yeah, the Abbey Road. The Abbey Road. Did you also no, see the, the graveyard and a Rigby? I didn't know, but um, did you write songs by the Beatles and take credit for them? It is odd. It's. it's <laughs> <laughs> I tried, but they threw me out. <laughs> Not um, the Beatles. <laughs> of the studio. I went to the shop and it's like, oh, I have all these albums. What okay. uh, brought you to Liverpool? Um, no, Abbey Road is in London. But I thought that you when, know he was a lot, the, Mike. when he went to Liverpool in the film, that wasn't when he went to Abbey Road then. No, he, he, just, he went to he various go to Abbey Road. He, he went on a pilgrimage to the places that yeah. he was going to play songs about. I think Ellen Rigby's grave. He goes to Strawberry Fields as well. You might assume that he's gone, he's gone to you visit these places to? like Penny Lane. Where is Strawberry Fields? 
Well, it looks like a rather run-down Probably playground like. in, yeah. in... I mean, it's that really depressing sort of looking playground in the film, isn't it? Where it's really overgrown and tangled and, mm. and really in no way could inspire in him the song Strawberry Sure, Fields. because it inspired them when they were younger. Yes, exactly. So he doesn't get, get to, to take these, also, He doesn't get to take this inspiration as his own. But it's he also not really about inspiration, is it? It's about him just remembering lyrics. You're right in one yeah. way. It is, he is trying to remember the words, which yeah. he sometimes gets wrong. Like with the being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, he got some of the verses mixed up. But with those two people who meet him near the end of the film, who are kind of stalking him and turn up at his gig at the end. Sarah Lancashire and... A Russian man. And Russian man. Yes, it's very difficult to play a song about a place you've never been to. That's what she says. Right. So he's also visiting there so he can have the element of verisimilitude in his head when he plays the songs, I think. I really enjoyed this film. But it has lots of like tiny things mm. that bother me. Was it the fridge logic moment that yeah, Tom Hitchcock talked fridge. about? Yeah, that's fridge logic. It doesn't matter as long as you can keep someone's um, sense of disbelief going for the duration of the film. If afterwards, when you've seen the film, you go to the fridge, get a beer or something, you go, wait a second, why did she vanish on the train or something? You know, it doesn't matter. Why did she vanish on the train? <laughs> yeah, Hitch, why did she vanish on the train? Because it's called The Lady Vanishes. <laughs> All right, let's have some fridge logic. Rob, what after you'd seen this film bugged you about this film then? Okay, so this is when you, if you start thinking about it, it, it your brain hurts and you go cross-eyed like in Austin Powers. <laughs> but oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. He realises that there are other things that have disappeared in the EMP or the electrical storm or whatever happened where the lights all went out. I think he probably goes into another dimension, which I'll address in my sequel idea later. But... In this dimension, other things are missing, such as cigarettes and coke. And you start to think, oh, what are the consequences of these things being, being missing? Quite, it's probably a nice way of, of uh, getting rid of cigarettes from the film because you probably can't show cigarettes. People, a lot of people smoke in, outside in pub gardens and so on. And, mm. and it's got a nice little tick box to sort of say, oh, that's why there aren't any cigarettes in the film. So it's probably boiling his noggin there. But the so other part of it, I was thinking... used to get rid of child actors. There's no Oasis, which is just a joke, obviously. There's no, <laughs> without the Beatles, there, there is no Oasis. And it says, <laughs> you know, that figures or whatever, and it gets a big laugh. Um, but you think, without the Beatles, you would think another band would come in and create similar music so that when he comes up with the Beatles songs, they seem derivative. But of course, that would ruin the whole... Concept, but nobody does. You know, the best musician in the world is Ed Sheeran, <laughs> which is a. Which I think he played well. You know, the, yes. um, you, he played you, that for laughs. He was supposed to be that yeah. in a world without the Beatles, he is the height of creativity. I mean, that was a bit of satire because, wow. I mean, initially, I think the idea was that he that was went gonna, over my head. He was right. going to be played by Chris Martin. I found out really, and there's a there's a kind of line earlier in the film where they listen to him play uh, yesterday on the acoustic guitar, and, and one of the friends says, "Yeah, but it's no." Fix You by Coldplay. Yeah. What they're saying is that in this world, that's the highest form of music. So it would have been Chris Martin, but okay, okay in this in this version, it's, it's Ed weird, Sheeran. Because that's something that someone might say anyway in this reality, because it's... it's no, no, um, I think you're, you're right. Yeah, I, some people do have that opinion, but I think in this world, yeah. it's this weird world where nobody... No Beatles, no Wings, but no Badfinger, no... But nobody comes in later and comes up with any music that is similarly influenced. Mm. I, I, get, I understand that they're not really thinking about it too much. But. It's a bit like Groundhog Day. They don't go do any explanation to Groundhog Day. I mean, I think if I remember rightly, the, the original draft of the script that uh, Harold Ramis was going to produce from Danny Rubin, the studios pushed to have an explanation put in that why Bill Murray is in the loop because they thought well, no one's going they want an explanation mm. for what it is because the audience isn't going to buy it unless they have some setup mm. so he half wrote some sort of thing about 
a woman that he cheats on early in the film mm. uh, it turns out to be a witch and she places a curse on him and it was one of these things that Harold Ramis was his first result was like as soon as he got the script he was like right now we've done the note I'm not filming that <laughs> I really liked the additional omissions from this reality yes. you know, I love it uh, when he's on the plane and he asks for some coke and then he just gets the look from the stewardess and then he remembers it doesn't exist um, as I think a popular the biggest belly only as cocaine Rob Watson Rob will attest to this I, I mean I laugh quite a lot in this film anyway but when he asks for his mum for some coke, she says, what's coke? And then he types into Google coke, and it just comes up with the image search, I, the, the biography thing on the right of Pablo Escobar. It's like, it's like it takes a fraction of a second. That, I bowed over and laughed. But I, I was out for like 30 seconds trying to regain composure in the cinema from laughing so hard at that. It is like Swiss cheese, um, the, the sci-fi in this. And that's fine as well. I know they've dabbled with this before, the soft sci-fi, with About Time, which I've not seen. Right. Yeah, I haven't seen and it that's either. That's what he wrote and directed. I was going to ask if either of you had seen it. I no, it's the only one of his I haven't seen. Okay, right, yeah. bit of a moot point then. Yeah. Um, oh, another bit with Ed Sheeran though. Okay. I like the fact that he... Um, well, I like the fact... Stop bringing up Ed Sheeran. It was definitely satire because he's at one point he's he is literally saying... Uh, well, I, I thought no one had come along and, and beat me in a, in a song battle. And, mm. and and his ringtone is one of his own songs. Yes. You know, I, I respected him a little bit more after See, watching I wasn't it. sure when it started if he was taking the piss out of himself or not. But then as soon as you get to the whole Hey Dude gag, it very much cemented like, no, this is Ed Sheeran taking the piss. So why wasn't Chris Martin in it? Mm. Maybe he has no sense of humour. Maybe he doesn't. So... Points deducted from which Chris Martin. Completely makes sense, let's yeah. be honest. Um, I can easily believe that he is a humourless man. <laughs> I should um, have like Tom York in it instead. It's just some weirdo... The Ed Sheeran moment I liked, actually, was... Um, and I, I liked these these other characters as well. I'll talk about Mira Sayal and Sanjeev Bhaskar yes. as Himesh Patel's parents. Perfect casting. Um, they were brilliant. brilliant casting. And uh, they got so many good lines. And I love it when uh, Sanjeev Bhaskar realises he is Ed Sheeran and then he's just, well done. <laughs> it, was such a, it was such a sort of that generation <laughs> approach to this young man who's been successful it's like oh, you look just like Ed Sheeran it's like I am Ed Sheeran well, well done. done yeah <laughs> really they're believable parents and, and that moment where Malik's trying to play Let It Be On The Piano that was so for the funny. first time and in they're this constantly universe. being interrupted that is that is so true of in a universe experience of just trying to say something to your parents it was so wonderfully <laughs> it is those domestic um, and I'd say quite British domestic scenes that mm. I think Curtis does get right yes, I mean yes. if there is a positivity to his writing I think he he does nail those those kinds of moments, those sort of domestic moments, the relationship between parents and children. Yes. I think he does very well. Um, and this film, and the best parts of this film are those moments, I think. It's those mm. familial relationships. Can I shoehorn a point in about, well, not even a point, an observation. In that scene, I just remembered, you know, the uh, you get the frosted glass of the, yes. of, of the door as the people come in. That's the sort of thing, I suppose, with the Boyle direction, is it, it gets me thinking more about the sci-fi sometimes, all the other elements of it, because there's a clever intent with all his direction. Mm. Yeah, I think it, I, I end up sort of uh, thinking more of, of, of the story or, or thinking that they could go a more interesting direction. Um, I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy it, but um, those I, I was just I was looking at some of the um, the choices in this, and of course you get the, some of the boil staples. You don't get the narration, but you get um, some boil staples. Well, you've got uh, <laughs> it was you've got the... high and low angles and so on. But often, actually, in this one, it's almost something like I I consider stalker cam maybe, um, which I don't know if it was a conceit about inauthenticity or something. We cut to an angle which is sort of behind a tree or inside a little 
shack on the pier or something. And you also Dutch angles sometimes. Lots of Dutch yeah. angles. Like, so is his world on tilt because everything's yes. kind of gone out of... I feel like the MB... But you get those sink. a lot as well in something like 28 Days Later at mm. the beginning when... Yes. Um, when I can't remember the, the character's name bus. or the actor's name, but sure. when he wakes up and he's going through London. Cillian um, Murphy, That's right, Cillian Murphy. Murphy. A lot of the shots in this reminded me of shots from that scene. You know, in Steve Jobs, they've got projections of, <laughs> of uh, footage and so on. In this, you get to the literal words of a, of a Beatles song sort of flying down the, <laughs> the tunnel. And I thought maybe the, the music was coming back, that it was going to be like a reset switch, and the music was all going to come back and he was going to be found out. I did like it, though, when he got to the, the towards the end of the second act and he needs to chase after his love. And then we were like, this is... This is into pre-or Richard Curtis uh, movie territory. Plus and Danny said, Boyle. And said, plus Danny Boyle. So it was like, like, when we were sitting there in the cinema, we turned each other and was like, what's going to happen next? Well, he's going to uh, run to catch the girl before she leaves on the train. But what about Danny Boyle? Oh, when he gets to the train station, he'll probably just say the name of the train station <laughs> in front of it. And we, we were taking the piss. And it is <laughs> exactly what happened. Fill the screen with words. Fill the screen with words. Uh, this, this I found really interesting for the Danny... Danny Boyle, because for one, it's by far the best directed Richard Curtis film uh, because of Danny Boyle. But it, it, I never realised just how funny he is when it's not some sort of really dark comedy. Danny Boyle's got a, like, like train spotting has is, is absolutely hilarious, but like, so many of the jokes revolve around really dark subject matter. Babies on the ceiling, exactly, and, and, and uh, shallow grave as well. Things like Life that. Life is ordinary. Yes, yes. So that's a rom com. So he, but it's a, that's a lot darker though. This is the thing, and you go to something like this, and it's got that lovely sweet vibe, and then to mm. have, I really enjoy seeing Danny Boyle do films where he's really restrained because it really makes the restrained film more visually interesting because he's just trying to do whatever he can to sort of bring life to it. And yes. I, I think that's a wonderful juxtaposition. I do want to ask uh, both of you, best Danny Boyle film? Uh, not that I'm asking a question rather than saying, is this? I mean, it can be your answer, but what, oh, do you, what is oh, your pick? Uh, I don't think this is my favourite. Uh, oh, no, high on my list would be things like... 28 Days Later is 28 Days Later. A Life as Ordinary, I think, is very funny. Yeah, that is. It is you've got pretty... some uh, slumdog Dog Millionaire, which is obviously one of his big hits. I haven't not seen that yet. Um, seen it either. It's very good. Yeah. Um, you've also got um, Sunshine, which I, I think is... I hate the third it, act The third act trashes it, but oh. every time I watch it, I still think this is very good. It's a shame they did that. See, but I feel it's a wasted premise, Sunshine. It's such a brilliant idea that it falls so apart. It's so well done for most of it. It looks I mean, It really is, and it looks great. It's like a British... Well cast. <laughs> I was about to say a very stupid sentence. I was about to say it looks like a British Ridley Scott. Then I realised. Ridley Scott is very, <laughs> very about British. As British. It's about yeah. as British as I wish I could yeah. combine things, because I guess you're not asking, you know, what's your desert island boil? I'm going to say Steve Jobs. I love the fact that he, he, he split that into three, like a play, and it's 16 millimeter, uh, Super 35 or whatever, and then HD. And I love the projections and that, and I love the aesthetic of that. Would I want to watch that again and again and again more than, I'd probably say 28 Days Later, because Life Less Ordinary, I watched that recently, and it is concentrated. It, 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 it's so many ideas in one, in one place, and most of them work. And just a few of them don't. But 28 Days Later, I think it's a, a perfect package. What's your favourite, Mike? Just, I, I, think, um, I think it is 28 Days Later. But interestingly, one of the things... I was, I was thinking about this question, and I still think he's yet to make an absolute standout masterpiece. Oh, I, I, still, I still don't think he's made... He's got it in him. He, he's, he's made, for me, like a string of 8 out of 10s. I think a lot of his films are very good, and none of them are superb. Almost. Um, they're almost. And I think... The, the, I love 28 Days Later, but I also think its pace just drops sometimes. Oh. Every time I rewatch 28 Days Later, there are moments in it where I think, I'm actually a bit bored now. Mm. Um, which is a shame. Yeah, I think it's weird because I think Trainspotting is probably the closest he's got to a masterpiece, even though it's not my favourite film of his. I think because mm. I've still got Trainspotting 2 
in my in my head. So I'm, yeah. I, you know, he got before he went on to do Shallow Grave. He made his name doing episodes of Inspector Morse. Really oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Need to find those. Um, don't need to pair him off with some other character like you join us we just we just had a small break and uh, we just uh, brought up that might just brought up the point that at the end the uh, protagonist's romantic interest was dating somebody um it was a bit of a doom romance he could see it coming and he's perfectly fine with that but curtis has a, a romantic interest oh, yes. for him waiting in the wings Back for up him romance. waiting in the wings as in it cuts to her face and she's looking at him and then the next scene we see that they're together and that's it everyone's paired off it's a wonderful romantic sure. world now because nobody goes we away really without needed... a party bag exactly. at the end of Richard Curtis we really me, needed that moment it's when the main character what's his name in this Jack is it Jack Malik. Jack, Jack Malik. Well, he's, he's going off with uh, Ed Sheeran isn't he and he's going to go to Russia and the uh, Lily James character can't come with him because she's got school. And then he asks the, the sister, oh, what can you do? Can you come with me? And she's like, no, I've got to do a school play. And then we never see her again sure. until right at the end. And Gavin, is it Gavin? It is Gavin, yeah. He doesn't come into contact with the sister in any other scene. Ah, but he's been... Yeah, this is the thing. We're no. supposed to assume that he has because he's dating her they're, sister. They're paired off in but the same so way that Shakespeare weird. used to pair people yeah. off. They're of the opposite sex sure. and they're not together. That means he's been preparing a side piece uh, of the inevitability of losing... Yeah, essentially. Oh, well, the sister will do. Was even suspecting I mean, it that's, the whole time, it's, it's seriously messed up. Evil, whichever way you, you it's know, a dreadful it. thing to do. See, now, this Never is ever so... just randomly pair off your characters <laughs> See, now, at the is... end of a story. It does not. It's not satisfying. It's creepy. It's it makes them look like shallow. It's, because no, it's, it's something that you sometimes mention as well, Jules. You know how in Disney films, um, they the, the the main <laughs> character can't. Kill the bad guy. Yeah, oh, they have to fall off. They have, they have to exactly. They have to fall off a, a building. This person or murders people. Therefore, I must murder him because he's in the wrong. Sure. They often hold yeah. out a hand, and it's just not. They're not quite yeah. good enough. Um, they don't do the Roger Moore thing of you know flicking the tie off and letting them fall down. <laughs> Great moment. <laughs> so yeah. that this is the equivalent of that because what happens is instead of there being any collateral damage, I want to see collateral uh, damage. That's interesting drama. Sure. Instead of being any collateral damage yeah. from oh, actually, I'm yeah. sorry for leading you on, and, and Gavin runs away crying. He, Gavin, you know, already said, actually, I saw it coming. And not only that, yes, he immediately pairs up with someone as well. So this you just get... sister. Yeah. This is my biggest problem with the... One of my biggest problems with Just you like real life. The thing is, sorry, okay, these sorts of situations don't happen in things like Four Weddings and in Notting Hill because there's more time spent on developing secondary characters. Mm -hmm. Because this has, like, a laser focus onto the main characters. The only one that is... Uh, developed to any degree otherwise is probably Kate McKinnon's character who's used more or less for I think just joke factory let's talk about Kate McKinnon then so Kate McKinnon in this film plays his producer who is going to bring him all of this money and fame and she, mm. she talks about it, you know are you ready to drink this chalice you the thematic question you know are you really ready to become this, this big oh, star she literally asked and him that yeah, I know I was sitting there I was getting so angry in the cinema I was like Jesus Christ hide your plot point she has almost no redeeming qualities whatsoever it's re I found it really hard to believe that he would actually just go along with her I mean there are other producers in the world presumably like she's very frank about the fact that all she wants is to 
make most of the money that he will make off this music and take it for herself and the rest of the production team and like and uh, and and she's just totally unlikable. Mm. She needs some level where they give her weakness, just something to make us empathise about, even if it's just for a yeah, moment. Just a bit then, of then she'd feel like a real person. I think the intention is it's lampshading. What you would normally do is say, have her be nice to Malik's character, and then behind the scenes you go, oh no, look, she's just an evil. But because we've had that archetype of producers before, say in the nineties, this character would be played by Keith Allen. I mean, he actually does play a similar character in this um, in a TV show called. Um, Young Person's Guide to Being a Rockstar, and there is a classic arsehole producer in that. What I'm saying is that they think, oh, put it out in the open. This is what you get if you go, you want to be successful, and there aren't any alternatives. I, it's part of, I think, the culture that we understand that's the compromise you have to accept. I think tonally it's a weird joke choice as well, because her jokes very much felt like the sort of thing she does when she's improving in other films. Uh, like Ghostbusters is the one I can think of, and while I did find her lines in that, some of the funnier ones, it worked with the style of comedy of those, but Richard Curtis's sort of very British, subtle humour uh, with the odd silly gag, meeting her very brash Saturday Night Live comedy. It was, mm. I don't know, it felt like an odd choice. It's, it's not just her, you're right though, it is the character and also it is that juxtaposition between the reality of the parents, uh, we were talking about the subtleties there, and mm. then also there's these cartoon scenes, like the boardroom where they're deciding the album oh, covers. It's, like a, it's funny in the moment though, you know, there's like 100 people there, and obviously they have no idea about creativity. So that, they, that was the scene that made me... Every everything, single thing that's yeah. been said, yeah. That was the scene that made me want to vomit in my mouth thematically speaking. I mean, to be honest, I, I suppose it's, it is probably so close to home that that probably happens though. I, can actually, I, oh, I know it's cartoony, it probably but is very I'm sure true. like somewhere I'm sure in Africa... Curtis has been through that. They probably tried to make, uh, uh, what's it called, In Time? In Time. He probably tried to make In Time and they were like... About Time. About, about time. time. In Time is in the time with Justin Timberlake uh, one. Justin Timberlake, yeah. Justin Timberlake's a great actor. I have him on my screen. Um, and it was directed by the same guy that did Gattaca, whose name escapes me. That's why I saw it. Cause it's this, it's is Justin Timberlake by... better than Jude Law? Possibly. I'll take that. Rob and I, Rob and I clash over Jude Law. I, I, I will Jude forgive Law. Jude Law basically anything because of his do, role in Gattaca. Do you know I, I am so one hundred percent with you that I go even to one hundred and twenty percent, and I'm like I will forgive Jude Law for almost anything because I just enjoy watching. Jude do you know Law what? I do forgive Jude Law. This is the thing. Unlike, um, do you hear that, Jude? You are forgiving. <laughs> you're, you're I'm hey, sorry, Jude. Hey, 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 Jude. Yeah, be in any of my films that will never happen. Um, no, unlike John Malkovich, who had loved the film with. <laughs> the thing is with Jude Law is I forgive him because like I forgived him when I watched um, <laughs> Guy Ritchie's recent epic yeah, uh, King Arthur. Was it Secret of the Sword or, or Secret, Clash of, of the, Secret of the Seven Stars? Clash uh, of the Super Mario Bros. Secret of the <laughs> It was it was Tale of the Sword. Oh, Bend or? It Like that was it. Um, bend it like a Bend sword. it like Beckham. Poor blimey. What we've been derailed. I have a I have a, a shocking a shocking um, thing I need to admit. It's something I've struggled with for years, but I feel this is the right company for me to finally come out and just say it. And it's who I am. It's just got to make it a part of myself and not be not be ashamed. But I love Notting Hill. I think Notting Hill is one of the best movies ever. Right, I've said it. It's out there. But do you actually love Love Actually? No. Good. <laughs> Jules, you I don't love Love Thank you. That's right. <laughs> but this is the thing. The thing with this movie, my big problem with it is that it actually, in a weird way, it. Not structurally, it doesn't buck the trend structurally with the romance, but I feel thematically it kind of goes against what he's put into his previous films. It sounds a bit, uh, bit obtuse, but I'll, I'll just I'll try and sort of illustrate what I mean. In in in, in Notting Hill, I'll use that as an example. More abstruse. But, uh, abstruse. 
I was going to say, you actually already came out as a Notting Hill fan uh, in the episode Book Club. Did I? Well, maybe I just, maybe I'm overcompensating and I just wanted to say it again and again and again. (laughs) Make a comparison between Notting Hill and this film. Okay. Why why does it work in Notting Hill? The theme to this film, as is rather, rather unsubtly said to us in the audience, is all you need is love. That's all there is. doesn't matter if you chase for fame or success or um, go after anything else. It's irrelevant. Love is all there is. It's a depressing uh, depressing. philosophy. Thanks, Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) The point I'm making is that the film itself was going for a more darker, satirical edge. And when you take that in addition to this theme that's like saying, well, don't try to create anything. Don't try to be famous. Don't try to be successful. Don't do do anything except uh, be romantically successful in romance because that's the only way in which you'll ever find happiness. To me, it feels thematically disgusting. And I say that, you know, a man who has a very successful career, being a creative person, is looking down from the top of his mountain saying, yeah, I've done all that, it was shit, you should fall in love instead. Okay, but it's unearned, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not his creation. Well, about how yeah, certain about McCartney, as in somebody who in real life mm. had this creative, you know, became a creative like icon and now is telling us in this film actually the only important thing Curtis, is to... you said McCartney. Wasn't it McCartney? In the, he meets Paul McCartney, doesn't oh, he? Oh, John he meets Lennon. John Lennon. But, but I'm referring what? to Richard Kurt. I'm oh, at the end. Yeah, when I'm saying oh, somebody, when I say someone telling us, John Lennon's pretty dead, good. Though, isn't he? he is, which point. is why, that's, why the moment, nice. that's why the moment was meant to have this, this much gravitas nice. that it hit you with. See, this is that's, yeah. this is why I'm the wrong person. You're like, who's that beardy bloke with the glasses? I have a uh, problem with biopics about musicians. I find them just, I find them so annoying. I find them boring. Sure. I just hate them. And this film gets away with it completely. This film does, this film gets to have its cake and eat it. Right. Because it basically gets to do a Beatles biopic in the sense that you get mm. to see all of these songs being performed for the first time. So you get the excitement of, oh, I love that song. You know, it's like, yes, here we go. You don't have to have I any yeah, of the, totally. this is how the Beatles' lives were. Where oh, it's like, God. oh, well, we have to stick with historical accuracy. And we have to have, we have to have a person who is going to win an Oscar because they wore a pair of false teeth really well. Those biopics always feel like they have to hit those particular moments that we know about. And there is a Beatles film, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there is a Beatles film which is mainly about them when they're playing in Germany and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And the, and the uh, fifth Beatle that got, you know, uh, thrown by the wayside and so on. I don't know if it gets to Shea Stadium, but you know what I mean? It doesn't do all those moments. Well, it doesn't, and you know, they, they don't have to show you, oh, well, this is the moment in their childhood where it becomes obvious that they're going to be superstars. Yeah. It's like, no, that never happened. What That's how people's getting... lives work. If you have a fetish for that kind of story structure and that kind of let's see the, the band uh, forming sort of thing, but you don't want it polluting a, a band that you already like, just watch that thing you do. It's a Tom Hanks film about a fictional band who essentially go through the kind of monkeys slash Beatles Rolling Stones journey exactly as you explained. It's as cliche as that. Or Spinal Tap. Well, yeah, but that's a satire. Oh my God, I need to go home and change my clothes. <laughs> Rob, your overall impressions of yesterday? Uh, well, it was I quite f- cloudy, wasn't it? But then uh, the sun came out in the end. Actually, it was, actually it was, I almost burned. <laughs> I took a crisp yesterday. And I in Liverpool. quickly walked across... Oh, no, was in London. I was in London. Abbey Road is in London. But no, I, I they quickly walked across <laughs> the, uh, the zebra crossing. They have all these like white balloons up there and everyone's taking pictures all the time. So I thought it would be a bit trite to do it. But, um, but you did anyway. I, I walked. I didn't. I didn't do any you posed photograph. But um, was it just you on your own? Uh, it's a working zebra crossing, so people are driving up. It's like get the hell out of the way, you <laughs> tourists! Yesterday, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what else to say. You know, and I, um, I preferred it to something like Love Actually. It wasn't a sickly sweet and six form 
as the trailer made it out to be. I thought, oh, this is a kind of, you know, one joke idea that's going to be dragged out for two hours or something. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't get bored and, um, yeah, I had some fun. I, I asked you the same question last time. I think we watched Shazam, but we saw the movie for £5 and you recommended it. Would you recommend if it was for £10? Films at the cinema are too expensive. So the answer will always be no. You hear that Jude Law? He's coming for no, you. No, the answer will always be no. It's not worth £10. Nothing's worth £10. I, that's what I'll say. <laughs> it should all be three quid and we should just get back to normal. And we should have... I don't know. And everyone should be eating Space Raiders... And eating lollipops and crossing the road. I don't know. The, like the, the, it was the, in the 90s. The money thing is a tricky, is a tricky thing. I, I, just, I just think, you know, £10 is probably a bit too much to expect people to pay for it. It's I a bit agree. like a lot of these things. They know they can they can get you to pay for it. A bit like you know, football mm. season tickets or whatever it is. Let's just crank it up. It, it doesn't take anything from the quality of the film. This is a good film. All right, come on, I'll stop you'll, asking you'll have you. A good time. Sit down. I'd say Sit down. in essential cinema experience, this is a film I think you can enjoy in your living room. We all, I mean, essentially do enjoy this film. And I'm, and I'm saying as someone who loves Richard Curtis's work, I mean, I don't think he's the best. Um, sometimes, as I said, I don't like uh, Love Actually at all. I thought this was very enjoyable. It's not as good, no, not as, good as uh, For Weddings. Nowhere near as good as uh, the masterpiece that is Notting Hill. But if you like romantic comedies and you like Richard Curtis films, you can't go wrong. And if you like The Beatles, it's the, the chocolate sprinkles on an extremely sweet cake. Now we turn our attention to uh, the marketing department within us all, and it's time to tag your flick. Flick off. <laughs> In space, no one can hear you scream. The brother of the director of Ghost. Be afraid. Be very. Whoever wins, we lose. Tag your flick. Tag your flick. Rob, shut the tag door. my flick. Tag, <laughs> okay, tag, speak to flick, you later. Flick, tag. My, flick my tag. <laughs> tag oh my God. Richard Linklater's slacker. That's your challenge. <laughs> A oh, run wait, on was the that 19, Was that 90 minutes? You, <laughs> did you, did you, <laughs> do you want to know uh, the actual uh, tagline of this film? The real tagline? Yeah, let's start with that. Uh, it's, yesterday everyone knew the Beatles. Today, only Jack remembers their songs. He's about to become a very big deal. They should, I mean, it's um, a big poster, wasn't it? They should. Um, <laughs> I think they should have been a bit more obvious of what the film was about. <laughs> Do you want my actual tagline? Yeah, sorry. Elizabeth. Give us your tagline for... Okay. <clears throat> choose the Beatles. Choose the White Album. Choose playing at Shea Stadium <laughs> to a crowd so loud you can't hear yourself playing. Uh, choose gurus and sitars. Choose counting all the holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. Choose walking barefoot across the Webber Crossing. Choose lovely Rita, meter maid. Choose your past. Choose yesterday. Oh my God, that... I'm I'm, a fr I'm frightened to go next, Rob. I have nothing that remotely compares to the brilliance that was that. But nonetheless, you are nonetheless. next, Jules. I can't compete on quality, but I can compete on quantity, for I have two. Nice, nice. One here is my serious movie poster exec marketing department guy, man. It's Kate uh, Killer. And, and uh, yeah. And the other one is a, it's a bit of a silly one. Uh, Good. The serious one is... Yeah, makes sense. All you need is laugh. <laughs> terrible, I love it. But Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> and my uh, my silly one is, what if John Lennon came back from the dead <laughs> from the director of Twenty Eight Days Later? <laughs> Very good. That's brilliant. That's well done. Maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to see I want to see a Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> Yoko. Lennon's oh no, Lennon's lot. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about a segment, my, my favourite segment of the show, uh, where we talk about what the sequel might be. Jules, go first and do it fast. Where do we go from here? 
it's more like if this is an anthology film series. So I'm proposing a film mm. where we don't follow Jack Malik for the sequel. His story's done with. But I'm thinking we follow the journey of someone else in this universe who knows things have changed and wants to take credit for it, but in a different medium. The Yesterday Cinematic Universe. We follow a desperate to succeed British screenwriter who discovers they live in a world where Richard Curtis doesn't exist. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very meta. So he decides to write Love Actually, but he's going to do a 21 Jump Street and this time reboot it as a comedy. That's fine. Could you put some, some laughs in? I will. Here are, here are the laughs you requested. <laughs> so yeah, what follows is a lot of meta winks to Richard Curtis's previous films, loving parodies of the film industry being full of pretentious assholes because apparently that's... Uh, that's all he wants to write about now. And Danny Boyle guesting as himself as the one to direct all the films. And in the end, the main character realises he needs to get to the plane on time or he'll lose the love of his life. But she never got on the plane. And he's like, I should have been honest with my feelings rather than be frightened of upsetting the status quo and opening myself up to potentially being hurt. Oh, it's so bloody hard to be a lovable, befuddled Englishman. And she's like, you had me an Englishman. <laughs> no, and then she says, what, what's a plane? They kiss, fade to black. Title appears. Fade to from... Black. What? Fade to Silla Black. Fade to Silla Black. The titles appear from Rags to Richard Curtis. <laughs> very good, very good. And it took me two hours. That was brilliant. Say... That was lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rob? Oh, right. Yeah, mine I very quickly um, knocked up uh, this morning. So oh, it's more of a bad. it's more of a initial pitch. Although I do have a uh, short uh, idea first. <laughs> the day after yesterday, a science fiction disaster film revolving around climate change <laughs> in the not so distant past. Oh, Potentially the Ice Age, starring Brendan Fraser. Yes! Oh! Yes! Will it ever die? <laughs> okay, here's the here's something that I've cooked up. There are other lost ideas and inventions due to the storm or EMP, whatever happened. Uh, in yesterday, such as Coca-Cola, cigarettes and Harry Potter, which we've mentioned before. This is almost mass amnesia, almost a miniaturised dark ages, but it's actually something more akin to the Mandela effect. Malik has slipped over into another dimension, very similar to his own. One could assume that the others, that Russian guy and the woman who stalked him near the grave of Ellen Wrigley, are also part of that group. Perhaps a sequel could include one of the people who, from now on I will call the Reminders, uh, conspiring with a scientist to recreate the circumstances of the dimension jump and travelling back home. Other things have changed, like maybe this explains why they, uh, Malik never really got on with that girl, because she never actually liked in them that way in the real universe. Ooh. And that paranoia starts huh. seeping into his head. That's an interesting thought. So initially he's trying to stop it, because if successful it could destroy his life, this wonderful life he's achieved. Mm. But one, what right has he to deny their return? And then also this dawning, it wasn't just the Beatles that was a lie, the whole rest of my life is a lie as well. Screw it. Have uh, Cronenberg direct this one. Oh my what? god. Alright, now I'm interested. Can, can I just address <laughs> one thing we didn't talk about, because you bring it up by Cronenberg? The bit where <laughs> James Corden appears, and then, it, and, it, and then it develops into like a David Lynch film. I, I understand that um, Corden's out of focus because they're focusing on... Because he should be in life. The sweat on Malik's ear. Come but also, you, Corden. The way it happens, it's like... It, it's almost that point where you're passing out. Like, he transforms into this Gaussian blur. You know, oh, bring them on. It's slow motion. And yeah, you're your oh, studio yeah, right now. It's choked out. It's, it's, choked out it's frightening. Yeah, it's great. This is the, do you want to explain this moment? Just for... uh, so this is, yeah, he's, he's on the James Corden show, sadly. And, uh, <laughs> and he's just about to release the album. And then really just what he always fears does happen. And James Corden says, oh, you know, but we, we have, we have uh, two men backstage who, uh, who say that you have copied all of their songs. You know, that he really starts to sort of hallucinate and the, the, 
you, you'll probably explain it better. Goss, Gossian? What? Oh, Gossian Blur. Actually, it's a photo. I think they have an album by then. Gossian Blur. It's just like a blur, you know, a bokeh, whatever you want to call it, but um, just when something goes completely out of focus. And, right. But, but yeah, it's it's a to nightmarish effect. I loved it. It was so lynchious. It, it was, it was so lynchious. I was like, good, God bless you, Danny Boyle. Actually, I've just realised that was a dream sequence, but it was still scheduled to go on James Corden. So yes. what actually happened on James Corden? You don't get to see us. Maybe it happens well, after his album launch. Because that happens at the end of the film. Well, it's that time again. It's time for quiz time. Is the answer uh, I am your quiz master for today. Uh, gentlemen uh, playing as a team. Playing as a team. Might as well until we Let's disagree choose, so yes. intensely that we decide to split up. Yes. Because so. yes. uh, if I'd done that last time, I would have got a point. You would have. So this time, I'm going. If I disagree, oh, I that's am right. Yeah, I, I ruined ruined your chance last time. You did, you bastard. Okay. Question the first. <gasps> uh, Danny Boyle, the director of this film, said that Apocalypse Now was the film that ensured he became a director rather than a priest. But he went on to say that he would recreate one director's work yesterday style uh, a man that he called the Picasso uh, of our time if he suddenly ceased to exist which director was Boyle referring to Whoa. was it you've got options oh okay got yeah, options. Well, yeah that's, you've got options. was it Christ. A Nicholas Rogue B John Borman or C Ken Russell. He it? did um, uh, Altered States, didn't Altered States, which the devils. Uh, Mike famously us. thinks is under- overrated. Oh, yeah, we famous. love. Oh, two, two directors there that we know we love. Yeah, uh, I know. That's what Zardoz done. as well. It's totally the first one. Three. Yeah. All three of them, I'd like to say, are famous British directors who had their heyday in the 1970s, but you can read into it however you like. I, I think... will say, don't look. Na- uh, the only film I've seen of the first guy is Don't Look Now. And I, that I bet feels... you've seen another. The Witches. The adaptation of the Roald Dahl book. Really? Uh, Angela Houston. I could probably see more of that in Boyle's work than I could see Ken Russell and um, Borman. I could see Boyle taking Walkabout down from the Criterion Collections uh, closet and saying, oh, I love this film. I wish I'd made it. It also means, but are we saying we're we're living in a universe here where Danny Boyle didn't honestly think, he saw Zardoz and thought, I want to remake Zardoz. (sighs) Should we go for A? It does seem the most I'm likely, go doesn't it? it? I agree. A. You saw through me. It's Nicholas Rogue. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> well done, though. Uh, yeah, I tried to mask it. Second question. Uh, Mira Sial is better known for Goodness Gracious Me and The Kumars at number mm. 42. Mm. But which Marvel movie did she appear in recently oh. as Dr. Patel? I feel like... I think it might be Doctor Strange, but I'm not sure. You sure? Yeah. What you mean because Doctor Strange is in a hospital and there are lots of doctors? I feel like it might have been, yeah. Uh, option one, uh, Captain Marvel. Option two, mm, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, or option three, Doctor Strange. Captain Marvel's two is recent enough that I don't think... She, I don't remember her being in that. And um, I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, like, I uh, guess within the last year when it came out. I've not seen so that film. I saw it came out. She, I don't remember her being in that at all. And it's, it's, they're both okay, set I haven't seen York. Ant-Man and the Wasp. I Can we rule strange. out um, Captain Marvel because... I wanted to say Doctor Strange before it even started. Let's just go with your answer. Like and a... it's correct. Wow. Yes. I was overthinking. I'm impressed, it. Doctor Strange. I, I, uh, I don't. Well done, it feels like that's occupied a part of my brain that's pushed out, pushed out some very <laughs> useful information. Final question: Can can you get a clean sweep for the first time on this show? Uh, yesterday features 16 songs from nine different Beatles albums released in the UK. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Which of these Beatles albums did we not hear a song from? Oh, you'll be better at this one, Rob. I did put this in because I know you're yeah. Beatles fans. Is it uh, Please Please Me? 
Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. No, we heard something. Or Magical Mystery Tour. We definitely heard Sergeant Pepper. Magical Mystery Tour has obviously Magical Mystery Tour on it. The UK one has the other. It has like Penny Lane. Did we hear Penny Lane? We heard. And I think it even has Strawberry Fields Forever. Great question. When you say the songs we hear, is it like songs are actually he's played or song? Does it count like if he just is trying to remember lyrics but he hasn't actually said the song? So it features the songs themselves rather than just characters talking about the songs. So it's I think forming them we hear the music. I think Please harder, Please Me, it, okay. the first album they did where they where it's all original songs yeah. is Hard Day's Night, I think. And Please Please Me is before Hard Day's Night. So there's covers, are there? So there are, there are covers on there. Please Please Me is not one of them. Your, your instinct... You went with my instinct <sighs> last time. I'm going to go with your instinct here because I really don't know. I've, my inkling is... It only says not Sergeant Pepper. What's all you need is love? What's that one? I think that's on Magical Mystery Tour. Well, there you go. I think. It plays over the credits. Does it? Yeah. Mm. Go They're, and you for an answer. I'm going to go with Please Please Me. I'm going with Rob. I, please Please Probably Me. Probably wrong. It's Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club <gasps> What? Really? I can't believe it. That is like the, That's amazing. The we are reminded of, with a little help from my friends, right. in the dentist scene, and when I'm 64, um, when he says yeah. this line, yeah. we never hear any of the songs. Yeah. From Lot from Abbey Let Rose. It Be, Lot from Abbey Rose, yeah. quite a few, couple from Help. My pal um, had... Please, please me, we had... I off. saw her standing there. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, and Magical Mystery Tour, we have All You Need Is Love, yeah. which is on the UK album. And we just completely wrote off Yeah, the... I completely wrote off, it's the most it's famous Sergeant one. Pepper, there's That's no insane. tracks on Sergeant Pepper. Uh, and obviously from the right album, we have Back in the USSR and Obladi Oblida. There are probably more songs mentioned that are played on yes. the, in, in the film. I think that was because the they repeat, thing about them. Yeah. They repeat them because they're the songs. Is, that, is that because they couldn't afford the oh, licenses? Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they played a lot of the big, big songs, didn't they? So also none from well Revolver. Done. I don't know if that's... Uh, that's There were none from that. Well, they, he does start playing in a rugby, but oh, I yeah, suppose that means... That's it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that I would say that doesn't count that's because he never actually plays it. I mean, that's part of the joke, isn't it? Yeah. He never quite gets it, really, does he? Like, Got it. Right. No, well done, good Mike. Question. Very oh, good question. You, that's cool. You saw us just like completely. See, I overthought over it on the first two I, questions, you, you and then that one needed overthinking. That, yeah. You have no idea how 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 with how much trepidation I went into. Am I really going to ask these guys a question about the Beatles? Um, but I <laughs> no, I, I feel I feel ashamed. Two out of three. Will, yeah. will one of us ever do it? Well, we'll, well, we'll, 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 we'll do it. One point, we will. Stay tuned to find out, please. Yeah, thanks for listening, Andy. The book of the dead. You sure you want to be playing around with this thing? This is the moment where we uh, where we cast aside yesterday, and we talk about some other films which we were reminded of by a word. Jules, remind us that you you were brave enough last time to uh, open the unholy pages of the Necronomicon. Tell us what did you pluck from its fiery depths? I I, I looked deep into the eyes of hell himself, and I found the word superstitious. That's it, superstitious. A ripe, rich vein, I would say. Um, I avoided the word. <laughs> The you know we're talking about parallel dimensions and so on with this film yesterday. No, <laughs> I like it. Um, but I think I remember last episode because I edited these things in boring detail. You put your finger on the word, and I thought you'd put your finger on the word above the word you picked. Yes, and that word was paused, which yeah. would have been an excellent excuse to talk about Garfield the movie. Exactly. I don't need an excuse to talk about Garfield the movie. <laughs> Bill Murray Garfield plays Garfield. Right? That's right. What's the weird thing with that? The connection. Ah, this What's is the, the connection. Connect- the thing is because it's written and directed. It's directed by the, the director Ethan Cohen. Bill Murray says he thought he was going to be <laughs> being directed by Ethan Cohen. That's a genuine fire Cohen. by agent moment, isn't it? He doesn't oh, have an agent. Well, yeah, this is the thing. Uh, Bill Murray he just has that. an answer. Now, machine. He has an answer machine. According to folklore. According to Dan right. Harmon, but apparently this is, I have 
looked into this. Is apparently Daryl Hannah has true. a lot of experience with voicemails. Though. Well, he was trying to get hold of. Uh, yeah, that's very true. It, he was trying to get hold of Bill Murray to play the main character in Community's father. And the way you get her, what Bill Murray has is he has an answer phone and there's a number, and that's in every sort of month to six months, wherever he decides, he just checks the messages. And if you have the number, you can just leave him a pitch. And he'll get back to you or he won't. No agent, nothing. Wow. So the film that I chose for the word superstitious, I'm just going to leap straight in, was The Phantom Carriage from 1921. Nice. By Victor Shostlum, um, oh, who is we, the we, director, we, actor and writer of this. That. We actually had a genuine moment where we thought we might have all picked the same film. I didn't really think it was that likely. Oh, um, because but I would, picked a film I was, from 1921. <laughs> um, I picked a film from near that. Oh, <laughs> there yes. Mine was from 67. Okay. Rob, you hipster. Well, we have, to, we have to think. Well, that might be. Right, so, um, what, was so the, what, was the, what was the film called again? It's called The Phantom Carriage. I know this. Um, it's, a real, it's a real classic yes. of silent cinema. Like, if you were to ask someone, you know, really in the, like, name your five favourite silent films, like a lot of people, I think, are going to put The Phantom Carriage in there somewhere. On one level, it's a classic, sort of almost Victorian ghost story. And you've got to think, 1921, genuinely closer to the Victorians than it is to now, for example. Mm, very true. Um, the background mythos is that the last person to die before the clock strikes 12 to ring in the new year will spend a year as the driver of the carriage which takes people away when they die, mm. basically as like mm. death's driver, which That's is cool. a deliciously old-fashioned kind of superstition. And the way it's relayed to us, we get this mythos through a group of three drunks who are seeing in the new year by telling ghost stories to one another in a graveyard. You know, it's, it's classic ghost story stuff. It actually reminded me, that scene reminded me of Are You Afraid of the Dark? from Hi! <laughs> hey, nice. That's cool. Um, uh, the tone's pitch perfect with this very atmospheric lighting and colour filtering, um, which was helped immeasurably as well by a terrific score, which uh, the version I saw was recorded in 98 by Matty Bai using a 10-man orchestra, and it's it's Ooh. great. It's, it's a great soundtrack. Apparently there's another one on the same... I was watching the Criterion um, release nice. DVD of this, and I didn't watch the film again with a different soundtrack, no. but there's one with a pair of experimental it. artists, which I actually now... I was reading into the soundtrack, and maybe that would have been a good choice. I as sometimes well. go for them, because I watched yeah. Passion of Joan of Arc recently, and I oh, went yeah. for like the 90s avant-garde electric guitar one. Is this like, 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 like Metropolis? Yes, this is the they one. Redid it with the, the the 80s didn't they do Metropolis? Yeah. Oh, Metropolis that's kind of a pop music thing. Oh, that's right. um, that's Giorgio Moroder, but um, yeah, they have like uh, Peter Gabriel stuff. Yeah, because it's not avant garde, but then but then Gabriel was avant garde. It's yeah. interesting that you bring up uh, Passion Drain of Arc though, because as well as being a superstitious ghost story, this film is superstitious on another level in the sense that at its heart, it's a Christian morality play, oh. and this is a very religious film as well. Um, it's you know the, the core theme of this film is that the martyr's boundless faith is ultimately going to save this wretch and this wretch's soul basically you know by showing complete faith in God that will win the day. Uh, and Christianity is a prevalent theme in the origins of Scandinavian filmmakers. You've got Shostrom's contemporary Carl Theodor Dreyer with Passion of mm. Joan of Arc and Audet. Um, very religious themes. And then, of course, you've got Ingmar Bergman, uh, mm -hmm. who comes into the Swedish scene, having been very strongly influenced by Shostrom's work. Uh, so Seventh Seal makes a lot of sense, actually, when I think yeah. of it. And I think the tone by Bergman's time, by the time you get to the 50s, it's become slightly more psychological, slightly more philosophical, probably, mm. you know, reflecting the change in the time from mm. religious sentiment uh, to more psychology and, and psychodrama. Interesting. Uh, but there's absolutely no doubting the influence of Shostrom on his work. Bergman himself described The Phantom Carriage. It completely overwhelmed me. I was shaken to the core. So it is a it. tremendous film. I highly recommend it. Well done. Rob. Should I go next? My pick uh, is, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing The Phantom right. Carriage 2. This <laughs> time it's personal. I, I watched this... In this uh, exploitation film. I watched this, maybe it was last year. It's V from 1967. Ah. 
Have you seen that one? I thought that was a television series. It's written V-I-Y. It's Russian. I'm not sure. I think I think that's how you pronounce it. I have no idea. It was produced in the Soviet Union, obviously, 67, by Moss Film. Um, and two directors, Konstantin Urshov and Gergi uh, Kropachev, I probably butchered that. And if you find squint... Russians in the 60s butchered a lot of things. Woo-hoo. Coming for you, Jude Law. No, wait, I'm saving you. If you... <laughs> How do you follow that? Um, well, if, if you squint a little bit uh, during some sequences, you might swear this was a lost Sam Raimi classic. Really? Uh, the film is short but sweet at an hour and 17 minutes. And involves a young priest, although in the translation I got, he's referred to as a philosopher, possibly something to do with Moss film that, who has to remain for three nights alone in an old church where a witch has been interred. He just has to make it through alive. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's more than he bargained for, and he recognises the witch. Um, it's based on a popular folktale by Nikolai Gogol. Our young priest is the classic reluctant hero, and like Ash from the Evil Dead trilogy, he's not only got himself in trouble in the first place... He's similarly put through his paces by supernatural forces. Plus, in places, it is generally amusing. Uh, <laughs> there's a point where he can't stop dancing and so on. And there's an early scene where the witch climbs on his back and rides him like a flying horse into oh the God, clouds. That sounds so sad, Raymond. Mm. <laughs> I can just see him doing that. The main bulk of the film centres around those three knights. Draws a chalk circle around him to protect himself. Has Good. to read these prayers. Yeah, the practical effects slowly increase in their imagination. At first, the candles are just blowing out. By the end, dust-ridden Lovecraftian demons are shambling out of the shadows and climbing on their backs down the walls. By the nice. second night, he goes grey, just like me. It's it's a great film. It's a short film. Definitely bring that up in a podcast. <laughs> definitely see which which one? Um, no, it's it's probably the perfect pick for a Halloween film, really. But yeah, there's the element of superstition. It's clearly religious, but they they've swapped out um, priest for philosopher. And um, you do get the same conceit in um, Flandre Carriage, where at, I don't know if it's bookended, but it's at least very much at the end. It probably is at the beginning as well. A couple of, uh, I think, drunks talking about the story. What so, is it about drunks telling the, uh, yeah. telling the background to a ghost story? The, Sounds great. Uh, yeah, it's does it have a flying turd cam? She does sort of um, fly on her coffin at one point, like, like surfing in the does sky. Does she go... Flying around the, in the room, and yeah, and she, she, well, she casts out, you know, she's like, I call upon the vampires, I call upon the, the werewolves, and she they come about, out the walls. Is and, she rushing about a lot? And yeah, it's it's great. And he obviously, every time he comes back from a night just about surviving, he's like, oh, don't, don't send me back, you know, he just gets drunk with all the villagers there. He's like, please don't. It's like, we well, have a thousand lashes if you don't go back in there, and you get a thousand gold pieces if you do. So there's that kind of ash. With an element of like, you know, I want to skedaddle. Yeah. I've also got myself into trouble. He's a coward, but he feels guilty, and that's what keeps him coming that's back. Great. And practical effects, which yeah. I love. So, yeah, that was my pick. That's on track. I'll definitely look that up. Over to you, Jules. I wasn't sure what to watch. I, uh, I think I asked Rob earlier in the week, and I said, uh, "We're superstitious." I thought, "Give me any film starring Stevie Wonder," and he, he replied to me and said. Well, Ray Charles is in uh, the Blues Brothers. <laughs> that's true. That thanks, that's very helpful. Help me. That's, that's got some, some through line, I suppose. But uh, I, uh, I did a bit of Googling, and I stumbled across a film I'd heard about quite a bit, but I'd never seen, called The Black Cat. It's one of these universal horror oh, movies yeah. from 1954. It's loosely based on a story by Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, really, really loosely. <laughs> this movie is the first in the universal horror movies to star not just Boris... Yeah, the first one, star Tom Cruise fighting a mummy. To star not just Boris Karloff, but also Bela Lugosi. Nice. Opposite each other, both their first times, as mortal enemies. Excellent. This was the most intense experience I've had, and not just in movies. Right, here's the list. 
Satanism, necrophilia, torture, death camps, human sacrifice, women being drugged all over the place, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. (laughs) A black mass hysteria, (laughs) to Carter and Fugue, and it's only about 60 minutes. I think I've had drinks that lasted longer than that. You don't finish your drinks. (laughs) I don't. Pelagosi. Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff. I want to say Karl Borisov. Sounds like you should have been in your uh, Russian witch film. Boris Barloff. Boris Barloff. So Bela Lugosi plays an insane doctor, because of course, Mm. who escaped a death camp after being imprisoned there for ten years. Ten years! He suffers from horrible PTSD, as you would, and a fear of black cats that's so great that when he sees one in Boris Karloff's Art Deco Labyrinthian Mansion of Death, he throws a bloody kitchen knife at it. Not the Art Deco mansion, the cat. Uh, because, and I quote, black cats are the living embodiment of evil. I always thought that. So. But then in a later scene in this mansion of death, we see a black cat turn up. And I'm like, oh, it's fine, there's the cat. He just scared it off with the kitchen knife. No, nope. turns out Boris Karloff has hundreds of black cats that he keeps around his mansion purely because he knew that one day his mortal enemy, Bela Lugosi, would find him and he's definitely afraid of cats. So it's like that a cat is, force field. That is what this film is. That, that is like what this film is. You killed her as I am about to kill you. Uh, and the reason he's after Karloff is because Karloff is the one who put him in the prison camp originally, shortly before stealing his wife and infant daughter. So it's not too bad, it's not too bad. I can kind of understand it as villain motives. Oh wait, turns out Karloff is a satanistic cult leader who keeps Lugosi's now-dead wife frozen in a glass coffin in his basement lair for observation. Observation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and his daughter oh, was dead as well, no. but he's brought her back as a drugged-up zombie, married her, keeping her under a black magic spell and locking her in his bedroom of evil in his art death deco mansion, which, by the way, was built on the thousand-person mass grave of what used to be the said death camp. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds like I'm, I, I haven't talked about the structure or the film or pitched it, because this film is just like an amalgamation of just scenes of insane things and then about half an hour of someone sitting in a bed talking about, oh, it's quite scary here. No, no, everything's fine. And then it'd just be insane nuts things going on. It's the sort of thing, if it was pitched nowadays to a studio exec, they'd get five minutes into the pitch, like, oh, easy there, but easy. Hold on, pick a lane. We got, we got time here. What's one thing? Let's go with the necrophilia. Kids like necrophilia. Let's go with necrophilia. I see action figures. I see, I see condiments. Condiments. <laughs> Taste of death. I, did, I mean, I, I didn't leave like, a lot of an impression on me. I thought it's it's a it's a bit of a mess. Like yeah, as, you, mess. as you describe, it's, it's it's a very messy film. I think like it's a yeah. I, I didn't. It's it just didn't, insane. It's one of those things where you're not, if you don't know what you're expecting. It it's just. Now, of course, we need to uh, pick a new word. Pick a new word. We need to read from the book. No! You must not read from the book. I've moved. I moved recently, and I uh, my books were all over the place, and I wasn't able to unearth the Necronomicon from its fiery coffin of from its Art Deco mansion. It's of death. hiding from you. It's hiding from me. <laughs> it's hiding from all of us. I, it's more scared of us than we are of it like now. Being used in this way, yeah. it knows that one day we're going to choose the word that sets it, it free. That, 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 no, no, it wants us to set it free. We're uh-huh. going to choose the word that causes the elder sign to to bind it forever. To bind uh, it forever. Yes. yes. So oh, I picked okay. out uh, I, I picked out a book that I think is just as scary, if not more so, and that is the Step by Step Container Gardening: Fifty Recipes for Creating Glorious Pots, Pots and Boxes Fantastic. by Stephanie Donaldson. Thank you, Stephanie uh, Donaldson, for 
making this podcast uh, what it is. Oh, in fact, there's a little bit of Beatles thing here because at the back it says, "All you need to know to create a beautiful container <laughs> for all seasons." Is it love? All you need is plants. Excellent. Uh, and there are over 350 photographs. So I think randomly picking a word might actually uh, be a challenge. Well, all so, right. Uh, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. Roll, please. Let's see what happens. So, Rob, tell me to stop. Stop. Okay. Mike, tell me to stop. Stop. It's a picture. Okay. Throw apart. Do it again. Stop. <laughs> Creeping. 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 That, that could have been a That's a shame. The uh, word above it was tarragon. <laughs> creeping, creeping, creeping horrors and creeping plants. Creeping. Uh, we cannot get away from words that evoke um, a sense of dread. Wait a minute. This, um, this so isn't a gardening. <laughs> 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 Little Venus flytrap. Fly fly uh, from superstitious to creeping. We'll see what comes up next podcast. I understand uh, we've had more fan mail. Keep, keep, yes. them, keep them coming in, people. You have a letter. Oh, thank you. Dear geezers, I'd be in the shit if this letter didn't find you well proper. I've been caning your podcast well hard this week over a couple of bevies with my mates when we was on the lash, and I couldn't get it out of my boz. Absolute pucker it is. But why do you lads spend yonks talking about all them French black and white nonces? Well does my nut in it does. You should do a well smart arty farty flick like Pop Fiction, or one of them 70s ones with Bob Hoskins. That lot is well clever, and I reckon you blokes would fucking have it. Your best mate, Guy Ritchie, down the pub, Beverly Hills, California. Oh, thank, thank you for you. that, Guy. Thank I, 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 I look forward to you. Do you know what? If you make films as well as you write letters, then I think you're going to have an absolute stonking career. Well done. You should maybe consider thinking about adapting some classics, actually, with your control of the English language. It's marvellous. He raises the point. Why do we talk about all them French black and white nonsense? Guy Ritchie. I mean... <laughs> it's amazing that he what he does to films. We watched that um, King Arthur film recently. We did. It was incredible. Get this. He essentially has in the edit, let's say a four-hour film, mm. and they say, "Got to make it two hours, guy." He goes, "All right, a bit of a how's your father? I've got an idea." So every <laughs> scene, he's already got the little bit of glue, which is before every scene where someone says, "Okay, this is what we do." We cut to the scene. Oh, he's uh, doing a heist on the brewery, and they're going to steal the beer or whatever it is. And then, within that, they talk about what they're going to do next, and then there's another part of a scene that we're quickly skipping over, which could be could take easily 20 minutes. But then, after we've explaining that, we go back to the scene two scenes ago, oh God, yeah. and we end there and fade to black, and we're so like, cute. wait, did all that happen? Having they said that, the Man, Man from Uncle was amazing. Was great. It's the last right Guy Ritchie film I saw, so I don't know what you're talking about. I think that Brilliant. is the last film. Anyway, so thanks, Guy. I think you need to make more films, because when they're terrible, they're still amazing. Honestly, he's inventive and he has a voice. And, you know, not it's a shame many, about the accent on that voice. Not all directors have that. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me in uh, my house, my parents' house again. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been Mike, Rob and Jules in uh, Some Guy's Parents' House and we'll be sending you another episode sometime soon. What's the name of the uh, guy who did the music on the film that you talked about? Matty... Goodbye, a little help from our friends. Goodbye, all you need are podcasts. Copyright infringement. Actually, all you need is love. Everything else you do is podcasts.
have a question from an audience member who's just rung in. Regarding the film yesterday, do you think it would have worked better with a different band other than the Beatles? Great question. Mm. Good question. Good question. Nice. Slayer. Hang, hang on, you're off, you're off, you're off speaker. You're this very is, short. This is irrelevant film. now. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very good question, and uh, my answer is... No. Yeah, he tries to reinvite Cannibal Corpse songs and goes to a pub and starts singing songs by Cannibal Corpse and gets nowhere because nobody maybe, likes Cannibal Corpse. Maybe something like Elvis or or um, Bob Dylan. It's something like punk. Punk never happened, and then that'd be good. That punk never happened. Listening to prog still. That'd be the, that's like a utopian universe. <laughs> but okay. maybe like punk never came along and showed people to kind of let loose and Britain's more stiff than they oh, we need to be it? or something. And you can't really do it. You come music. along and. Oh, you've never heard this before. God save the great. You know, it's good. that could work. Like Elvis almost hits the same kind of worldwide sensation kind of mm. impact as the Beatles. But I think it's arguably the Beatles are still the biggest band that's ever existed. But Elvis is close. I'd and say. Cannibal Corpse. And, and Cannibal Corpse. Cannibal Corpse.